This is Charlottesville Tomorrow. Charlottesville Tomorrow is a nonprofit organization engaging the public on critical quality of life issues so we make informed choices for our community's future. Visit us on the web at seavilletomorrow.org. The six candidates for two seats in the Charlottesville City Council met at a candidate forum for the third time on October 11, 2017, at an event held by the Charlottesville League of Women Voters. The moderator for the event is Marge Cox. Good evening, and welcome to the forum where we have six candidates for hoping to be elected to the City Council of Charlottesville, Virginia. And I am Marguerite Cox from the League of Women Voters. Uh, we will be moderating this forum, and uh, the League is a nonpartisan organization. We do take position on issues, but never on candidates. The procedure is as follows. Each candidate will have two minutes at the most, and in the beginning they will give their opening statements. We will then have three different questions, each of and they will have two minutes to answer each one of those at the most, and then a summation statement. At the end of that, we will accept questions from the audience, and they can be directed to one or more uh, of the candidates here, but all candidates may have the ability to answer the question. By lot, we picked that Heather Hill is first to give us an opening statement. Right. Good evening. Um, thank you to the League of Women Voters for having us this evening. Um, and thank you to all of you for being here. It's just really great to see people continue to be involved in, in the civic process. Along with my husband, John, I'm the mother to three children. I have a seven-year-old who's a seventh grader. Um, I'm sorry, seven-year-old who is a second grader. <laughs> that would be amazing. At Burnley Moran Elementary. I have a son um, who's five and a half, and my youngest is two, and quite busy these days. Uh, I engage with the city through my role as the leader of the North Downtown Residents Association, and I also serve on the Belmont Bridge Steering Committee. My background um, in terms of education and professionally is um, industrial and systems engineering, and I also have a master's in business uh, from the University of Virginia's Darden School. Transparency and accountability in how our city is managed has always been a top priority of mine, and I feel like it could not be more important now. More than ever, our city needs strong leaders who are committed to taking responsibility, finding the answers that we all so desperately seek, and working with our community to solve its most complex issues. I truly believe I am that kind of leader. In February, when I launched my campaign, I committed to listening. Since that time, I have walked every street in our city, and as there's, these are out there, I have my map, and it shows just the top things that I've heard in each area, but every door knocked by my campaign leading up to that primary was done by me, because I really believe it's important for us as candidates to hear firsthand from the constituents that we hope to represent. The hours that I have personally spent listening to people, whether it's on their porch or in their homes, uh, and taking the personal stories in has truly energized and inspired me in ways that I did not expect when I first decided to come into this. And so um, I also feel like I've invested considerable time reaching out to constituents and stakeholders in our community, whether it be private or, or nonprofits, as well as our boards and commissions, because I really think that it's 
um, mainly means getting the root of these issues is really developing relationships with these people from the outset um, based on trust and respect. And I think for me, and it really starts now, and I've, I've been excited to have the opportunity to do so. Thank you. Mr. Jackson. Good evening. Thank you for having us, um, the League of Women Voters. Thank you all for coming out. My name is Kenneth Jackson. I'm a 50-year-old born and raised and educated right here in Charlottesville. Um, I've been to Piedmont Virginia Community College, Southside Community College, and several other places, as well as Virginia Sorenson School. I'm sorry, this thing isn't that loud, is it? Okay, how's about that? Okay. <laughs> but um, the reason I decided to run for city council, first I chose to run as an independent because I don't want to be beholding to parties. I mean, to me, this is people's lives. It's not a game of, like, cowboys and redskins. I don't want to be beholding to business or industry. I want to be beholding to the citizens. After being brought up here for five decades, I've watched this city change, and I can't always say it's for the best. I mean, we were a city of inclusiveness. Didn't make a difference what your income was, what your background was. We were a community, and we still are a community. For the most part, 98% of Charlottesville still wants to be a community, and we want to love and care for each other. Growing up here, there wasn't a neighborhood in Charlottesville, black or white, that I didn't go in and didn't feel comfortable in. And I want that feeling to come back. We need city leaders that are actually leaders, not here for their own personal gains or anything else. We need to be open and honest with our citizens. I'm not the most eloquent person, but you'll never see me lie to you because I don't have time for it. If you ask me a question, if you contact me, I will contact you back or I'll pick up the phone and answer you right then. I believe that government is of, for, and by the people. And your local government is your first source. It's the one that you can come to the quickest. And it's our job to work with the state and federal government to make this happen. Ms. Laufer? I want to say thank you as well to the League of Women Voters and all of you for coming out. Sorry, I want to try to make sure this comes over there. Um, I've been a member for many years of the League of Women Voters, and I really appreciate um, your educating the public, not just about candidates, but about issues and your lobbying efforts. Um, I always find I learn so much when I come to your forums. Um, but I also wanted to say, you know, I'm, I'm also a mother of three. Uh, my oldest daughter actually is here tonight. Uh, she's in Buford, and then I have a son at Walker, and then my son at Greenbrier. And I've been here about 15 years, and I've been on the school board for the last six years as vice chair and chair. And before that, I was on the Commission for Children and Families, where it was a consortium of uh, service providers and uh, city and local government um, officials talking about uh, students and children at risk. But so I've been in service for a while, and I can see this summer has been really traumatic, and this past couple of months have also been full of their own uh, tumult. 
And when I think of the things that are facing City Council, I kind of bring it down into four categories. The first would be the trust between City Council and the staff, and I think we need to work on that. And then I think the next is the very vocal um, organizations that are bringing up really important topics, but um, possibly not at the right time. <laughs> I think we need to be meeting with these people outside of this venue to really find out what their concerns are, because they're, they're true concerns, and come up with real uh, real. Um, answers to these concerns. And then I think our third uh, issue we're facing is the things that Heather and I have been talking about since the primary, affordable housing, uh, transportation, infrastructure, workforce development, Piedmont Promise, uh, transparency of government. And then I would say the fourth kind of category is all of the lawsuits that we are facing as a city, uh, the garage, the statue, the um, bike lawsuit with the county, and then all these other uh, groups that are coming to sue us right now after 812. Anyway, I'm really interested in talking about all of these issues with all of you this evening. Thank you. Thank you. And Mr. Long? My name is Paul Long, and I want to thank the League of Women Voters for inviting me and the other candidates to participate in this forum. I've been living in the city of Charlottesville over the past 20 years, and I'm running for city council because I believe the present city council is a, is a disgrace to the city. I believe that their lack of leadership has further aggravated the problems that we're facing. And I attended Chestnut Hill College in Philadelphia in the, for two years in the mid-'80s, got certified as an addiction counselor by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and worked in that field for a period of eight years. I'm mentioning that because I think that kind of experience is, is vital because I believe that 60 percent of the people that are serving the Alamore County, Charlottesville County Jail, nonviolent drug offenders who should not be in jail, who should be participating in, 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 in rehabilitation programs as opposed to costing the city money by having them behind bars. I served for 10 years as Tenecum Township's representative to the Southeastern Pennsylvania Transportation Board, which is a public transit agency for Philadelphia and the four suburban counties. I lived in Tenecum Township which is right in a locality right next to the city of Philadelphia. In fact, half of the Philadelphia International Airport is in Tenecum Township. I served a three-year term on the Tenecum Township Board of Health, and I'm mentioning all this because I believe I have, I'm bringing a variety of good experience to the city council that the city council needs, and, and that's it. Thank you. Ms. Walker? Good evening. Um, my name is Nakaya Walker. Thank you to the League of Women Voters for um, hosting the forum. I am um, a Charlottesville native. I've raised three um, children here. I've worked in a variety of nonprofits um, in the area. I currently work for the city of Charlottesville through the Parks and Rec program. I guess the greatest um, position that I had within the city of Charlottesville was working at Region 10. Um, that brought the most joy as a substance abuse um, clinician. Also, the very first time that I came to city council meeting was in um, 2011 or 12, asking the city council at that time to provide oversight for money that they had signed off for, grant funding for Region 10, that um, I didn't think that we were um, fulfilling the obligations of that grant, and I went up the ladder at Region 10 and um, ended up in front of City Council expressing my concerns. 
Since that time, I've spent um, a considerable amount of time at um, council meetings, um, writing to council, very involved um, in the room, watching meetings, sending emails, um, sitting in budget meetings, writing emails in the rooms for those, um, and a lot of nonprofits in the area. With my job as a substance abuse clinician, um, we work with drug courts, so every aspect of um, the criminal justice system, family treatment courts, social services, and all the agencies that worked um, with social services. So I have a lot of experience um, with leadership in Charlottesville, and um, I have done a lot of work way before um, ever even contemplating running for council. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Hall. Hello, my name is John Edward Hall, and I am running as an independent for city council. Please vote for me on November 7th. Lisa Province of the Charlottesville Weekly said she is reporting that I have been institutionalized with bipolar disorder in next week's issue. There have been mental breakdowns in the, my past, but not now. My mind is clear because my medication works for me, and I will be sure to take what is necessary. This mental disturbance I have had in the past should in no way interfere with my good mental capacity today or ability to inform my duties as a councilman. I would appreciate it if you would vote for me on November 7th. I'm sure that as a design engineer with six U.S. patents and two U.S. copyrights, as an illustrator, I am best qualified for the Office of Councilman. I graduated with honors in 1974 from Texas A&M University in Commerce, Texas. I was a medical student at the University of Virginia. Thank you. Thank you. Our first question involves the Dillon Rule, and rather than have everybody say what that is, let me refresh your memory as to what the, the Dillon Rule is. As most of you know, I'm sure, uh, Virginia is not a home rule state. It's a Dillon Rule state. And the Virginia courts have concluded because of that that local governments in Virginia have only these three options. They have those powers that are specifically conferred upon them by the Virginia General Assembly. They have those powers that are necessarily or fairly implied from a specific grant or authority. And they have those powers that are essential to the purposes of government, not simply convenient, but indispensable. So you can guess that that might bring a lot of legal issues. Uh, let's start here in the middle. Ms. Laufer, would you? So you've just given us the definition, and so that means we have very limited authority, as you can see. I know uh, a couple of years ago we talked about reduced sentencing for um, people that had small amounts of marijuana. We couldn't do that. Um, I know there's a lot of housing issues that also we can't enact because of the Dillon's rule. Um, I don't know what else I can say. Um, okay. Uh, you know, there's just almost every aspect that you'd want to do something different, the state won't allow it. So, I mean, we saw that also just most recently with the statue. So, um, 
I don't know what more to say about that. Sorry. Thank you. Mr. Long? As a native of Philadelphia, and I've always been interested in, you know, Philadelphia was the first capital of the United States, and the preponderant number of the founding fathers were from the Commonwealth of Virginia. I think it's a disgrace that in the Commonwealth of Virginia, the home of Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry, that we have the Dillon Rule in effect. The best point, you know, according to Jeffersonian democracy, the best government is at the local level, and I don't think that, I think the Dillon Rule should be repealed and replaced. And one area that I'm particularly concerned about was when alt-right had their rally on August the 12th, all these paramilitia groups carrying rifles and weapons and and lit torches were allowed to parade around in public. That should not be allowed. And I think that the local government should have the right to prohibit people carrying rifles and ammunition when they're having a public rally. It's a disgrace. It should be changed and overruled as quickly as possible. And I believe Charlottesville should have a home rule form of government. Ms. Walker. So for the last two years, working to increase the minimum wage within the city and other um, businesses within the city, I ran into um, issues with um, the Dillon rule and whether it could be whether minimum, the city could mandate um, an increase in minimum wage for businesses within the city. So for the past two years, I um, started an initiative to increase the minimum wage, which at the entry point in the city was $10.95 an hour, even though the city was having conversations with the University of Virginia about making sure that they paid a living wage for their um, employees and being able to increase that wage the city has the authority to say that they will you know pay uh, um, a higher wage within the city government but to mandate it for businesses um, within the city um, that was something that was um, prohibited by the Dillon rule and I think in terms when we're talking about increasing the ability for family stability um, home ownership, um, decreasing some of the major disparities that we have within a city. A city government should be able to implement a wage based on um, their assessment of what businesses, what revenue is coming in and what businesses should be able to pay. So that is one um, issue that I have seen personally with um, attempting to get the city's living wage um, increase. And that wage over the course of that time was increased from the 1095 um, to um, 1379. Thank you. Mr. Hall? Just to directly answer the question, uh, I believe that parking issues, city growth, affordable housing, and homelessness will be impacted by the drilling rule as it is currently impacting the statues in Emancipation and Justice Parks, whether they'll be removed or not. Thank you. Okay. Ms. Hill? Um, I think uh, the number one issue I heard going throughout the community was affordable housing. And it's, it's frustrating because people want to understand why can't we build more affordable housing. It's because we're constrained. There's only so much that we can ask of developers, um, given what the state has determined. Now, in 2008, um, under the, the guidance of, of Dave Norris, 
you know, we were able to receive affordable, we had the ruling made that we could receive affordable housing units for cash contributions from developers, and that wasn't in place before. So that just goes to show with the right kind of focus, we actually can create change and, and go to the state level and get those rules in place. But we continue to, pretty, to be very bound by the restrictions that are put on place for just developments that are done, done by right, because um, that applies really for those cases where they're going to do something outside of the intended use. And that's really an opportunity for us to really leverage our housing authority in more innovative ways because they have a lot more flexibility that the city doesn't have. Um, I would also echo the frustration that Mr. Long shared that, you know, we know our city the best, and we really should be in a form of government where we can determine the, the rules that we want to put and put in place um, for our, our locality. And I also would just say, as others have said, that um, to determine how we're going to tell our own story, our history, is important. And that's what's come up, obviously, with the statues. And I think that the productive use of time for, for you know, us as leaders or those of us in our community is working to go to the state level and to get those, those, that specific rule changed so that we all, whatever the decision is, but we all have the opportunity to kind of tell our own story and that this locality can do so. So, um, again, just really goes back to affordable housing, number one, though, for me, because I Again and again, we see that we're not building enough units to in an affordable category that will satisfy the clear demand that we have, but there's so many restrictions in place, and without that kind of lever um, coming, I think, from a higher level, that developers are going to continue to develop at the, at the market rates without any restrictions. Mr. Jackson? <laughs> the Dillon Rule and all these, you know, examples that have been thrown out had nothing to do with those. Affordable housing, talk to some of the developers as to why they don't do affordable housing here. It's not the Dillon Rule. It's our own ordinances, which for decades the city council has made so difficult, and then they put fees and taxes and stuff on people. Who do you think the landlords will pass it on to? I mean, I know everyone wants to say, hear me say, oh, no, the Dillon Rule is wrong. That's our rule of law, and that's our rule of government. comes from the Fed down to the state, down to the local government. Anyone sitting in here should know that. You know, the statue issue, that was something that, to me, should have been put on a referendum and let the citizens decide. You talk about how we want to tell our history. I've been here 50 years. I, you won't even let me tell my history. And the city council has taken that away, so the Dillon Rule really doesn't have too much effect in that. As far as the right to carry arms, you'd have to go up to the federal government and not the Dillon Rule to do that. And the feds aren't going to let you mess with federal law, and then you'll have to go through the federal courts. The Dillon Rule seems like it's going to hinder everyone, but these were lousy examples to give you. These were examples that, of things that could have been worked out on a local level with the laws we have and the powers we have, and they haven't been. There's a difference between affordable housing and public housing. We have about 75 units of public housing sitting there vacant. Dillon Rule didn't tell us not to fix them up when the federal government set down millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to renovate these units. Now, there are some things that the Dillon Rule may restrict us on, and that's why we work with our state and federal legislators to fix these things so we can go forward. But to do away with the Dillon Rule, no. Well, Mr. Jackson, maybe you'll start with the second one because it uh, carries right on with what you were saying. The character of the city is changing with increasing gentrification, fewer vacant lots, 
new technology companies, and a growing senior population. How should the city council address these changes? Well, first we need to address the seriousness and real issue of gentrification, and it's not color-based. You know, you look at Belmont and Hogwaller, those blue-collar neighborhoods, and all of a sudden now we have, I call them Benny Mansions or McMansions that just pop up. I don't think that it's fair for, and this also goes to the, for the seniors as well. You buy a house and someone puts a big mansion up that's $400,000, and all of a sudden you're paying almost the same tax they're paying. The city does not have to do that. That's a unique thing. The city doesn't have to charge you the same. doesn't mean we have to affect your property value when you go to sell. But we need to balance this, that if you build a $450,000 home, and that's the kind of tax you want to pay, then that's what you need to pay. But because you have a $250,000 home sitting right beside it, you shouldn't be hit with that. And that's what a lot of our seniors are facing. But gentrification, we've got to decide what kind of city we're going to have. Are we going to have the city that was homogenous at one time, where we had all economic levels? Or are we going to build this dream city, which this city council, I hate to say it, you two are Democrats sitting here, you ran Mayor Signer's campaign. You sat on school board and stuff. You know, are you going to follow the status quo that's been followed for decades? I mean, if we're going to stick with issues, let's stick with the reality of it. And there are things that the city council can do and can enact to help these situations. The fewer vacant lots, there's not as small of property as we think in Charlottesville. There is places to build, and trust me, they can build on a stone now. So we've just got to open our minds, change our ordinances, and actually build for affordable houses. We can build $150,000 homes. There's no such thing as you can't do it, but the city has to allow it. Ms. Laufer? So there are a lot of things in this question, so I'm going to try to equally divide my time. You know, I will say um, I have seen a huge change in Charlottesville from when I ran the first time for school board, and I did all the door knocking then and door knocking this time, actually in, in the middle there. I've really seen the neighborhoods change. They really have. And we can see the schools, too, have changed. Actually, we have increasing um, enrollment at the schools. So we are a changing community, and I don't think we can say we should just stop. You know, uh, I think we should count ourselves fortunate that uh, we are a place that people want to be, uh, but we have to have mindful growth and um, smart growth and really help our homeowners maintain their homes. Um, I'll skip then to the senior issue. Uh, you know, I have to say, plead ignorance. Uh, when I went door knocking, I didn't think I would meet as many seniors as I did, and I really did. And the needs they have are substantial. And there are things that the city council could do about it. So we have our deferred uh, tax rate. And actually, Heather and I both noticed that many of the seniors talked about the fact that they could make up to $50,000 and then have the reduced tax rate. But that amount was too low for them. If they could have a bit higher, they could actually 
you know, improve some of the issues in, at their house. They could fix the roof. And so we quickly uh, met with Jason Vandiver and talked about it and found out, sure enough, that hasn't been adjusted for many years. So I think there are things City Council can do. And I met with um, Peter Thompson and Marta um, Green uh, from um, the Senior Center and talking about the services they provide and really um, showcasing those. These are things that can help our residents stay in their homes, and I'd be very interested in working on that. And in terms of the new technology, I think we should be really excited about that. So Charlottesville is lucky enough to be part of this new Virginia economy, and we should embrace it. Thank you. Mr. Long? I think that the recent assessments, the reassessments of city property was a disgrace. They went up, they went up outrageously. I think city council should have done something. And I hate to give Mayor Signer a compliment, but he was the only one who said that maybe taxes should be decreased because the assessments went so high. I don't know how you go about changing that, and I don't know what the dynamics were in increasing the assessments, but it was a disgrace. And I can stand to be corrected, but I believe some assessments went up to two to three hundred percent. That no way that that should have happened. In terms of you know. It, a $150,000 house being affordable housing. If you're working in dietary or in a, a patient transportation at UVA and you're making twenty-five dollars to $30,000 a year, $150,000 is not an affordable house. You're not going to get a mortgage for that. I think an affordable housing should be maybe twenty dollars to $30,000, $35,000 at most. And I'm giving my age away as a senior citizen. I'm 68 years old. When World War II ended, the Federal Housing Administration guaranteed loans, and thousands of homes were built that ran from twenty to thirty thousand dollars. And I realized, you know, Donald Trump and the Republicans control the federal government. That's not going to last forever. When we get a progressive Democrat and the Democrats are running Congress again, we need to do something drastic like that on a federal level to give the city of Charlottesville localities the tools so that we can have affordable housing, so that everybody who's working can afford to buy a house. Ms. Walker? So the character um, of the city is changing, and that didn't happen by an act of God. It happened because people are at the table um, implementing policies that haven't been equitable. So I think the first step there is making sure that people are at the table who will implement policies that are equitable and take all people into consideration. But we need to set a priority on who um, we are building for. We need to set a um, priority for redevelopment of um, affordable housing. We need to make sure that we are a city that pays a living wage. So when you're talking about affordability, that people have an income um, coming in. And um, we need to change the way developers can pay um, into the fund or the breaks that we give them. The last city council meeting, at the very end of the meeting, there was a discussion about um, dogwood housing properties. And at the end of that meeting, I spoke up about the fact that they are now going into a 15-year um, of having their um, interest-free loan deferred. So they haven't had to make payments on it. Um, and they haven't had to change the contract or the stipulations from the original contract. And when you are talking about a city that's in an affordable housing crisis and there are buildings, we need housing built. We need to make sure that people have funding to pay for homes. Um, letting 
a developer or a property um, a for-profit company continue to benefit from um, interest-free city funding can't be the, na the answer to keep them engaged in affordable housing. So those are some of the things that we can do to make sure that the city doesn't continue um, at the pace that it has in the past few years. Thank you. Mr. Hall. Well, this question, I, I equate growth. This is about growth in the city, especially as related to existing neighborhoods. I equate it with the SIA, the Strategic Investment Area, a 330-acre area south and east of downtown Charlottesville, including neighborhood portions of the Ridge Street, Belmont, Carlton, North Downtown, Martha Jefferson, and Fifeville neighborhoods. This target area was identified by the city as a growth area due to its low density and available land areas in proximity to downtown mall for pedestrians. Uh, as far as a growing senior population, as far as a senior population can be better solved with a, a seamless population, a seamless partnership in the city county with, I think, Java the Jefferson Area Board of Aging, which has many programs to assure that our elderly grow old in comfort. Thank you. Ms. Hill. Thank you. I just want to make one correction. The first time I ever ran a campaign was my own campaign in the primary, so I just wanted to get that out there. Um, I really feel like the city is lacking vision on how we're going to grow. Um, I think too often, in, especially in neighborhood development services, it's very transactional. It's what is this development at this time, but not really looking forward to where we're going to be. And I think that's what's gotten us in the situation that we are with in West Maine. And unfortunately, I think it could spill over to Cherry Avenue if we don't get ahead of this. And it's, it's great, really concerning to me. And right now we're looking at allocating a position within the city to address, I guess, neighborhood or citizen engagement. And I think it needs to be much broader than that if we're really going to have the vision that we all want, so that we all want to continue to stay and live here. Um, but again, it goes back to the housing um, and how do we support and and incite um, and leverage the resources that we have as a city to engage with um, private developers and partners so that we can build those units because the city's dollars aren't going to do that alone. About 10% of the money will ultimately come from the municipality. We need to be working with and partnering with others to help us close that gap because it truly is a housing crisis. And we do have fewer, we do have very few, few vacant lots and we do need to grow, and, but we need to do it in a way that's going to be mindful of our neighborhoods and the transition that we have from those central urban you know, ring that we have, and then how does that then spill over? And again, some of these small area plans that are really desperately needing and the right attention um, are, aren't getting it. And I guess the concern is what is that going to have our city looking like down the road? Because as people see hotels built instead of affordable housing, they're frustrated and they're asking why. Um, and that's clearly the direction that we don't want to go. And when I think about new technology companies, I concur. I think that's great for our community, but we need our workforce development programs to be helping people to be able to step into those roles um, within you know, folks from our own community. And then once they get into those roles, we need to partner with those private entities to, to give them 
the skills that they need and continue those, like, whether through apprenticeships um, or programming. But we need to make sure that when not just coming into those entry levels, but how are we helping to train those folks so that they can move forward? And, oh, shoot, I have so much to say about the growing senior population, but it'll have to wait. We, infrastructure is part of that. So, All right, our final question is, considering the fact that Charlottesville has a city manager form of government, what do you see as the proper relationship between council, the city manager, and his staff? appointed boards and commissions, and paid or citizen consultant groups. That's a tough one. Mm. Ms. Walker, you want to start that one off? So I think the first thing that we need to um, be aware of is that um, this has come up since August 12th, and if you've watched city council meetings in the past or been at some of the board and commission meetings, you'll see that a lot of that... um, is in theory only. So I don't think it's something that we truly understand. One of the things that came out of the efficiency study um, in January was when that was released was um, how much city council puts on the, um, the city manager and staff. And if you watch previous um, city council meetings, you can see how quickly city Um, staff, the city manager, how quickly their decisions um, are overridden by council. And so this happens very often. A situation that had happened a couple of years ago was um, with Parks and Rec. There were some um, patrons from Parks and Rec who came in who wanted the center to remain open on Saturday mornings, even though staff going through the budgeting process decided that it wasn't producing the revenue to um, keep the center open at the time that it was open on Saturday mornings. But without consulting the city manager and his staff, there was a decision made immediately because council did not want citizens to be upset about um, the closing of it. And without consulting and coming back at a later date to give that information after looking at all the facts, the decision was made on the spot. So I think one of the things that um, has come out of the August 12th and all the dysfunction that we saw is that we need to actually um, give more power back to the staff that are, that are hired and allow them to make decisions and set the priorities for things and trust that they're doing their job appropriately. Thank you. Mr. Hall? The city council is responsible for picking the city manager. In Charlottesville, there was a large number of qualified candidates. Maurice Jones was appointed to the job and has done a fairly good job. I believe the city manager form of government serves Charlottesville well and will continue to do so in the distant future. The city manager is the quarterback of the city council football team. Thank you. Ms. Hill. I wish I had a whiteboard because I have all these like boxes of how people are related to each other. Um, I, I agree with Ms. Walker that I feel like right now I see an environment where council and the city manager are all trying to give staff direction and they don't really even know where to begin. And we also haven't armed them with the right tools in which to prioritize. And so I feel like they're constantly chasing their tails, like trying to figure out who am I, who am I reporting to and who am I following. And the onus that certainly falls on council to understand its role. Its role is to have accountability coming out of the city manager 
And then the city manager needs accountability then coming from its staff, and that's something we, we all need to get a little more tight about. When we talk about boards and commissions, I mean, we should be appointing people who are experts in our area. And when I, as I go throughout the community, I feel like I met experts in fields that I don't have a lot of experience, but they seem energized to want to be part of the process. How do we engage them and create an environment by which they want to be involved and be on these boards and commissions? Because they are the experts that we should, you know, be inviting into the, the discussion. But when we invite them into the discussion and they make a decision, we also need to follow their, their recommendations because they are the ones that have the expertise. And I've been very frustrated to see how often we're wasting people's time um, in terms of engaging them in the process and then just going off on our, on our own. And um, as re regarding the paid consultant piece, um, I feel like we have such a gem in terms of the University of Virginia and its resources um, in terms of intellect that we need to be tapping more often. And we also, again, need to be looking back at our own community. There are a lot of professionals here who I really feel would do a lot of pro bono time to kind of help solve the solution, some of the bigger you know, issues that we have because those are things that they have expertise in. But we're spending so much time working with people who live outside of our, our area, and then they just leave when these projects are done, and they don't live with the consequences. And it's not affecting... You know, where, where they are, you know, their, their life, because they go back to wherever they came from, and it's not Charlottesville. And, in a, and a, I, I really believe that we should be looking more at ways that we can increase the number of staff positions we have that are focused on some of these areas versus really relying on these consultants, which, quite frankly, are, are being paid at exorbitant amounts, and we're not getting the best bang for our buck. Thank you. Mr. Jackson? First of all, the city council <laughs> governs and runs the city. That's what they're elected to do. The city manager is underneath them, and he oversees the day-to-day -day operations and everything else of the city. We should always have a working relationship with our city manager. This came up way before the 12th, because there's always been concerns of when you have a complaint with the city manager, who do you go to? Now, it's funny if you give all, take all the power from council, if there's really an issue with the city manager, no one can come anywhere. No one can go anywhere. One of the biggest problems with the city is we don't have an open-door policy. As far as the boards and commissions, there are some boards we need to have, like the planning commission and things like that. But when you appoint these people and you put them in their place, let them do their job. Don't second-guess them. we all supposed to meet with each other and talk with each other. I like that to be done every quarter. So we all are on the same page. And they all know that they can talk to council. Um, consultants and all that, sometimes we do too much of it. So to sit there and say that I make more positions because there's a $100,000 position so we can all sit down and figure out how to talk as black and white people. I've never had that problem before in my life. So I don't know why we need a $100,000 salary to do that. But some of these consultants groups and all that stuff, sometimes we beat a dead horse. We've got in-house staff. As she said, we have UVA. We've got Piedmont. We've got people right here. We've got retired people who could do this for free or at less cost in the, to the city than what we do. But every time there's a problem or an issue, we decide we've got to put together a board or a Blue Ribbon Commission or something like that. It wastes time and it creates confusion. Thank you. Ms. Laufer? Yes, so um, the school board is the same governing policy as the city council. So the body of the council or the school board is to set a vision 
and they liaison between the community members and the um, management. They're directly responsible for evaluating and hiring the manager or the superintendent. And then they make budgetary and policy decisions based on the vision that they're working towards. And I think um, we need to remember that that is the responsibility. And I think it's really hard to be on a council or a school board and not get involved in the day-to-day -day activities because, you know, you're so passionate about it. You really want something to happen. But it's really incumbent upon the members themselves to hold themselves back and understand that they are not the day-to-day -day operator of the city or the schools. And then the relationship with the superintendent or the city manager is really about getting information from the manager about what is going on with the staff. Where are these projects that we've been talking about? I would like to see a lot more staff reports and city manager reports to the city council so that we can see where are these um, developments or something going on when we have a sidewalk project. We need to get a report back. What happened with this? You know, I think we need to get reports back to understand where the projects are in their um, stages. And in terms of boards and commissions, I agree. I've often said on school board, I'm on a lot of different committees that the city council has kind of initiated. And I always say to them, make sure that you're having this board or this commission because they're going to come up with a result of something that you're going to act on. Because it's really um, defeating to go to a meeting, you know, once a month or every week. And then at the end of it, nothing comes of it. I mean, there's a lot of good things that are coming with our commissions and boards, but we really need to be mindful of that if we're going to ask somebody to participate in a voluntary way um, to make sure that we're actually coming to conclusions and enacting them. And then in terms of consultants, I do believe that we could be doing more in-house and at UVA, and I'd be interested in pursuing that. Thank you. Mr. Long? City Council is the governing body of the city and managing director does operate the day-to-day -day operations of the city. I believe Mr. Jones is doing an excellent job and has done an excellent job from the first day he took office. But the past 15 months, city council has abdicated its responsibility and let Mayor Mike Singer assume a role of mayor that's never envisioned in a city manager type of government. And shame on city council for letting him do that. They've since, since in August 12th, rescinded his authority. I think he's abused his authority over and over from things that have come out in public. I believe he should be recalled from office. I believe he's arrogant. I believe he's incompetent. <coughs> he's been a disaster for the last 15 months in the day-to-day -day operations of the city government. I believe this city is spending too much money on outside consulting firms coming in and doing studies. Recently, in the last year and a half, City of Charles, I believe, paid 100 or $150,000 to a San Francisco firm to come in and critique the public transportation system. And that was a complete, and it goes on and on and on. I think the reason that this, that this happens is that city council doesn't want to take the responsibilities of making decisions, and they kick the can by hiring these outside consultants to come in and do paid studies. You know, all, all you have to do to critique the public transportation system is get a clipboard or a tape recorder and go out and talk to the people who use the public transportation system. But that would take too much time and energy on the part of city council members to do that, and most of whom have never used public transportation. The only member of city council that I ever saw use a city bus was Mayor Hooger, you know, when he was mayor of the city. 
That's a disgrace. That's a lot of money is being wasted on that. It's an abdication of responsibility, and it should stop. Thank you. Now, each, each candidate will have two minutes to give a summation, and this time I think we'll start with Mr. Hall. Thank you very much. If elected, the things I expect to accomplish for Charlottesville are, A, address the affordable housing crisis by getting more federal HUD loans for people in crisis, B, ensure a cooperative relationship between UVA, Albemarle County, and the City Council being the City of Charlottesville. C, develop a program to limit fraud and elaborate scams in our city. To do this, I will found an ad hoc group against crime to help police with petty larceny, etc., where the amount is less than or equal to $10,000. We can take criminals to court for Charlottesville people, the victims who lose money, have the criminals put in jail when we prove they are guilty. We can teach people to take notes about how about those they suspect are criminals and gain the innocent people restitution and succeed in having our judges rule against the criminals in our, in our favor. Never again will the guilty persecute the innocent. We need a Charlottesville that is responsive to the needs of all the people, is efficient in how those needs are dealt with, and efficient in getting them done. I think Rob Gracious, my case manager at Region 10, SPAC team, Dr. David Moody, my psychiatrist, Sarah DeWitt, my nurse, who have stood by me as I have consumed their services. I will work for better roads, sidewalks, and street lighting in our neighborhoods. I've been told by Lisa Province, reporter of the Charlottesville Weekly, that an independent candidate has not been elected since 1930 in Charlottesville. That is four score and seven years ago. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln referred to the Declaration of Independence when he did this math at Gettysburg. Please make me the first independent councilman and be part of a new tomorrow in Charlottesville. Thank we you. do this I, math sorry, since Mr. 1930. Mr. Hall, your time is up. Yeah. Ms. Hill. Uh, thank you again for having us and for everyone for being here. Um, and I always appreciate hearing the perspectives of other candidates. Um, every day of this campaign, I, I've learned something, for, something about myself, first of all, and something about <laughs> our, our community. Um, I feel strongly in the manner in which I've fulfilled um, my roles, both as an active community member, um, a professional, and a candidate. Really make me a unique candidate um, and choice for you on, on November 7th. Um, the priorities I heard from this community and ones I'm certainly committed to, to spending my time on um, are, you know, we, as it's come up many times, creating more affordable housing, which enables citizens to stay in those communities that they call home whether they be younger families or, or our aging population who wants to continue to remain here. Developing and growing our city in a way that addresses our community's needs with a long-term vision. As I mentioned, I feel like too often we're looking at the short-sighted and we're so busy chasing around what's the now versus understanding if we don't look in the long-term, we're going to continue to find ourselves looking around a city that we're not proud of and that we no longer want to live in. <laughs> We need to continue to focus on our schools through progressive education, investing in facilities, and comprehensive approach to supporting all of our students. They are truly our community's future. 
And we also have, which we didn't talk about tonight, which I love talking about, is infrastructure and our transportation systems. Um, and really think that if we're not really focusing our resources on those, they're going to continue to deteriorate, and they're also not going to be serving us in the manner which we need. Um, and we really need to take a critical look, as we all just kind of talked about, on how we're allocating our limited resources that we're getting you know, from each of you as, as taxpayers and making sure that we're using them in a meaningful way that is addressing our priorities. Um, I'm committed to partnering with many in our community on these priority issues because I really do believe that the City Council's success is dependent on being the conduit for the ideas of this community. We're not going to be subject matter experts at everything. It's your ideas and your strengths that we really need to, to leverage in order to, to be the most effective that we can as, as leaders. And I really hope that you may join me in that. Thank you. Mr. Jackson. Well, we've got less than a month. And I believe that an independent can win. Um, one, I need to apologize to you. You weren't the campaign manager. You were a field director, Mayor Signer. So I do apologize for that mistake. I always say, if you can't admit that you made a mistake, you're not worth it. And that's one of the problems we have with leaders now. They can't say we made a mistake or let's sit down and discuss this. You've got to cooperate. Now, having said that, my job is to make sure not to keep hitting you with high taxes and actually to make education and infrastructure work by not wasting money like we wasted a million dollars on a plan for Belmont Bridge and never used it. Never used it. That bridge has been falling down for four decades. You know, we have to be respectful of people. You know, they're throwing around the name Emancipation Park. Park. No one ever asked a majority of black citizens what we thought. It's offensive to us. It really is. Emancipation reminds you just as much of slavery as anything else. So as a city councilor, we have to sit here and be mindful of everyone, regardless of color, race, religion, economic class, or anything. Because this is a city. It's a melting pot. It's a cooperative city, and we're one community. We're one city. I mean, if you look around, you don't see that many people incorporated in here, we'll say. And there should be. Because people should be more into their local government and not just run out to an election every time the president comes up or the governor or something. This local body controls your immediate future. And they've done a lousy job so far. Ms. Laufer? Well, I want to say thank you as well. And actually, we will be doing questions. I was getting confused if this is it. But we will be doing the questions from the um, index cards. So uh, thank you again for having us. And I, I really do enjoy listening to all the candidates and all the ideas. You know, we're really at a special place in the history of our town. You know, there's so many things going on, and there's so much trauma, anger, anxiety. And it's so important right now more than ever that we have leaders that can lead us through this really tumultuous time. You know, I can say what I've learned really on school board is kind of five guiding principles for me. One, you have to listen. 
and listen, 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 listen. Listen to like you almost can't take it anymore and listen to people that really don't agree with you um, because it can help change the perspective and help uh, come up with better ideas. And then you really have to do your homework. You really have to understand what is possible. You know, um, when we're dealing with these big issues, this Dillon rule thing really is the thing. So understanding that, and then what is the capability of the resources that the city has to um, put forth? And then it's really, then you set that goal, and then you go towards it, and you go towards it with all the resources you can, and you work as a team. Everybody on the city council has to work together. You know, you can't get anything done alone. And the last and most important thing I've learned is it's really not about you or anybody else on the dais. It's really about this community and doing what's right for its citizens and helping all of us to come together and, I'll say it, move Charlottesville forward. So we've been talking a lot about affordable housing. Heather and I have met with multiple people that are engaged in this issue, the chair of the housing HACC, Advisory Committee, Habitat, uh, CRHA, and really trying to figure out how can we leverage that $3.2 million that the City Council, I'm grateful, did put aside. How can we really use that? Because we know we have a deficit of about 4,000 units. That's not a lot of money. And I would love to talk about the Piedmont Promise at some point as well, which is workforce development. Thank you. Mr. Long? Several weeks ago, I turned 68, so that means I'm the oldest candidate running for City Council. The only reason I mention that, I'm going to say this. The Democratic Party of 2017 is not the progressive political party that it was 40 and 50 years ago. When I was growing up, I remember Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, and Lyndon Baines Johnson being the leaders of the progressive movement in this country. That's changed. And I have great respect for Ms. Hill and Ms. Lawfer, who are decent, articulate candidates and have been raging a a uh, resourceful campaign, but I'm sorry that the majority of the people in the Democratic leadership, there's a reason why there aren't any Republican candidates for city council, and that is because the majority of city council is carrying the corporate agenda of the Republican Party here in Charlottesville. The city council voted to give John Dewberry a million-dollar tax break for the Landmark Hotel. I go by there regularly. I don't see any kind of movement in Mr. De Dewberry finishing that hotel. That's a disgrace. That's a million dollars that could have been spent helping the homeless, building a permanent shelter to take people that are sleeping on park benches and in tents who will be sleeping there tonight. And in a city and a country as wealthy as the United States and the city of Charlottesville, nobody should be sleeping in the streets. You know, that amongst one amongst many progressive issues that should be addressed. I, I took great pride in 1972 casting my first vote for George Stanley McGovern for president. That, those days have changed. We need two independent candidates to carry forth a progressive agenda in this city. It's time to break tradition and break a record. If you want to take control of city government, send two independent candidates who are aggressive, who are motor mouths to city council, and to change things. I'm a motor mouth. I will cause a lot of dissension in city council and be glad to do it. Thank you. Ms. Walker. So we have a lot of work to do, and um, that's one thing that we need to acknowledge. I had a meet and greet last week, and what, what the individuals in the room wanted me to say is that everything was going to go back to normal very soon. 
And I explained to them that the normal that they are seeking didn't exist in the first place and that for a lot of people, the chaotic environments that we've been witnessing since May is their daily existence. And so what I'm hearing as I campaign across the city is people who want confirmation that, hey, I just want my life to return to normal. And for things to get better, we have to decide as a city what we want. Do we want a city that's equitable or not? Do we want a school system that's equitable? Do we want housing that's pushing people out? Do we want individuals and jobs that pay well? And how do we define those? And so we need to decide that we are going to be okay with being uncomfortable until we truly heal from this and not have the expectation that we can just get back to normal and forget about why the events of the summer really happened here. Something that I posted today because there was discord last night, right? Because people are still hurt and they are angry as a result of that hurt and they're seeking answers and they haven't been given any. And one thing that I posted is we need to change the narrative that we've been telling ourselves, the lie that we've been telling ourselves, that individuals have come from out of town and is starting the chaos that we are seeing daily. That's not the case. You know, a janitor from the UVA area sent me a picture with the tiki torches in the trash can at UVA from Saturday. That's the Charlottesville that we live in, and we have to decide and commit to different. Thank you very much, all of you. And now we'll, we will entertain uh, questions from the audience, and I think we have some cards here. <coughs> Bunch of them. All right. Let's start with, do you support the approach of Solidarity Charlottesville to disrupt city government meetings? Why or why not? <coughs> Anybody want to tackle that first? I'll I can go start. first. Knock yourself out. Okay. First of all, there's something just called social respect and etiquette. Maybe I'm old school because that's the way my mama raised me and everyone else's mother raised them. It means that even though I disagree with you, I can still give you some respect and we can talk and discuss things, not be children. For someone to disrupt a meeting like what happened last night is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's really sad. The Planning Commission has nothing to do with that boy being arrested. That's between the police and the Commonwealth Attorney. So running in here and scaring the Planning Commission that they close down their meetings, we've got citizens who really want to come to meetings and discuss some real issues, and they're afraid to because we don't know how to treat one another. And it's actually sickening. That's a small group of people. And it's not representing minorities, and trust me, we can go over to Prospect or over to the projects right now, and they'll tell you they're not representing them. So to sit here and say, oh, well, things have, we've always, there's always been racism. There's always been hatred. Adam and Eve was a perfect example in the beginning of it. 
And we're not saying that we never had any racist people in Charlottesville or people that hated other people in Charlottesville. They didn't come out because they weren't forced out. Now it's a battle of about two factions and a 98%, the silent majority, we're stuck in the middle. So when people ask, can our life return to normal? We want to be able to work. We want to be able to come home. We want to be able to take care of our children. We want to be able to say hi to a police officer without someone saying, oh, that's the pig. This is not the way our society, and this is not the way Charlottesville as a community has started or was. And that's not us. Thank you. Who else would like to answer that question? Oh, we're not all answering. Uh, uh, no, we, you, you can all have the opportunity, but if... Are we going to order or we're not? No, we're not going in any particular order. So, anybody... Heather? No. I mean, I just, I feel like obviously these voices want to be heard, and I think we just need to provide the appropriate venue for those voices to be heard. I do not believe that coming into a planning commission meeting um, with that agenda is an effective use of, of the collective time. Um, but again, I don't want to diminish that there's still anger and still pain, and we need to find ways in which to have productive conversations. Um, I mean, I agree. I think it's really alienating for people from getting involved because uh, they don't want to come into these places. And we're looking to this community to get more involved and to really leverage the strengths that each of us brings. But I know time and time again, even more than I felt in the spring, people are just like, I'm not, I'm not stepping up. I, that is an environment in which I choose to not be a part of because I think it's threatening. Um, and it's been really difficult being running for, for office in this environment, if I'm being honest. Um, I think all of us have felt that at one point or another. Um, and so I, I, I don't agree with that approach, but I do think it's important that we find ways for, for the voices to be heard, but it has to be productive, and it requires that on both sides. And um, I just ha I'm not seeing that. Does anybody have anything else to add? I, I do. I, I think the interruption last night in the Planning Commission was, was wrong. It was rude. And, but I, I do believe the... Uh, after the August 12th, when the, this room was packed and people rushed up and had that big you know, banner, blood is on your hands, I think that was appropriate. It was very appropriate. And the reason I'm saying that is because for 14 or 15 months, Michael Signer stood up here with that gavel and had a lot of people taken out of the room, including Miss Mary Carey, elderly people, disabled people, thrown out. The complete violation of the First Amendment and anger built up over a period of months over that type of good. And I called Mayor Signer in a rally in front of the Landmark Hotel a neo-fascist because he was. You know, Michael Signer all of a sudden is talking about getting permits for people to have rallies downtown. When he had his rally to declare Charlottesville the capital of the resistance, he didn't get a permit for that. You know, and he's a lawyer, he's an officer of the court, but he said that rule was never enforced. He declared Charlottesville the capital of the resistance, and that very well may have been a worthwhile endeavor, but he declared, declared it on his own. He didn't bring it up before city council for a vote. And I think what has happened in, in, since the last two months is people's frustrations and anger just built up, and they reacted that way. Thomas Jefferson wrote that we need a revolution in the United States every 20 years, and that's not a Jeffersonian quote that you hear frequently, but it should be mentioned. I think a lot of these disruptions of the city council meetings were needed. They served a purpose. Maybe it's time to go on and, you know, to be being more civil again. 
I'm like Mrs. Mr. Jackson. My mother was from Louisiana. She was a white version of Madea, and I frequently got whippings you know, as I was growing up to, 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 to be taught how to act. I don't know whether she would approve of me saying, that, saying this, but I think initially the disruptions serve the very productive service. Anybody else So my question is why um, was the meeting last night disrupted? Why was the city council meeting on after August 12th disrupted? Because people don't don't feel heard. We live in a city where even if you come to council meetings regularly and tell the events of the summer, most people weren't paying attention. So a lot of people who needed a rally behind them who needed a majority of voices to come together with them so that the things that were happening to them, like all the disparities that we have in the city of Charlottesville, health disparities, wealth disparities, um, and a mass incarceration, um, income levels, all of those things people have been talking about for years, they haven't been fixed. People are talking about now the money for the statue. We could spend that money in education. We could spend that money in housing. We could have spent that money in education. We could have spent that money in housing before the events of the summer. So people went to planning commission last night, I'm sure, because that provided an avenue so that the entire city of Charlottesville and national attention could be brought to the problems that we're still having, that we're still busy trying to figure out instead of openly addressing how to cover them up. A few years ago, I participated in a protest on the downtown mall. And in that protest, it was about a mother who had had her daughter taken from her. And the reason her daughter was taken is because the mother thought she had a right to decide what medical care her daughter received. And social services told her she did not have that right. And so her daughter was just returned a month or so ago. The mother didn't do anything differently. But that protest on the downtown mall was the first time that the city acknowledged. They weren't concerned about whether this family was um, reconnected. They were concerned about their image. And until we are stopped being concerned about our image, we're going to continue to have these issues. Any other comments on this question before we go to another one? I would just like to say I think people are bringing real issues to the table, and this is a really serious time, and dialogue is critical. You know, um, I heard one of the planning commissioners say, you know, the 20 people could have had the two or three minutes for public comment because the business of the planning commission still has to get done. So, And that, by the way, is a volunteer you know, entity. And I know just from my own schedule how difficult it is to get it all back together. And, you know, I just think there's real issues and they're bringing real issues. We need to dialogue. I don't know if this is, I don't agree that that is the way to pursue the dialogue because it stops the dialogue and then the um, meeting ended. And this voluntary body is going to have to try to find another time to meet to do the work that they are charged to do. And I think it doesn't um, allow for solutions to be created in that way. Okay. The next question is, and I think this was one that all of you will want to answer, as a city councilor, describe your own approach to working with the professional staff and appointed boards. 
So uh, maybe we'll start. Maybe I could start uh, with the staff. You're saying? Yeah, with the staff and you know, or appointed boards. Sure. So on the school board, I can say, you know, at first you're like, actually at this point, right, I probably know most of the staff because my kids are in the school and just from being around. But you really have to hold yourself back because you are not the boss. You're not the one that's, you know, it's the city manager and the superintendent that is running the operations. And I think having a cordial um, relationship with the staff is critical because they're going to be implementing the things that are done. Um, what I like to do, of course, we're right now the school board is visiting all the schools, and I usually just say, hey, how is it going, and how could the school board help you in your goals for this year? Um, and, you know, that's even on the committees, that we're all on committees, which I'm sure the city council has the same. Um, and it's really hearing from the staff what their needs are and how the city council could appropriate budget or policy to help them implement their um, their day-to-day -day activities. And um, that's, and also with the commissions. The commissions, I would say, you know, we really have to be listening to their recommendations because we've asked them to do the work. And then we come, they come to us with a recommendation and implementing it would be probably the standard, I would say. Okay. Uh, uh, okay. Oh, we may as well just go, uh, go around uh, as we have been, Mr. Long. I'm a great listener and uh, having been brought up in a big city and learn how to be respectful to other people rather, rather quickly just in order to survive. But I'm also, I uh, believe that a, uh, uh, I'm a great reader, and I absorb a lot of information by reading, and uh, I believe it's a city council person's responsibility to gather as much information as possible, and that means listening to the staff in their areas of expertise, asking pointed questions in areas that you're not familiar with, uh, you know, and uh, coming to decisions. Uh, but, you know, the, the uh, city council is also overseeing the daily government of the city, and it's important to do that. Uh, I'm the, uh, uh, well, I don't know about anybody else sitting on the bench. I'm not working anymore, so I have a whole lot of time to do that. And I think maybe something we should have one or two members of city council who are retired. You know, who are, I hear people in city council when the meeting's going over to 1 o'clock in the morning, I've got to get up tomorrow to go to work. I won't have that problem. You know, <laughs> you know and I'd be glad to sit till 3 o'clock in the morning and listen to people. I'm also going to say I think city council should meet once a week. You know, I think that there's enough business to, re to require that. And I also think that the time period for people to speak should be increased from three minutes to seven minutes. And if that means the city council is going to stay here to 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, so be it. Ms. Walker. So again, back to my comment about the fact that we have a lot of work to do. Being in the rooms, um, for example, with the City of Promise, there were 28 members on that steering committee. What you found is that there's a lot of dysfunction, the same level of dysfunction that we witness um, displayed just in this room after um, August 12th. That is happening in a lot of um, divisions within the city. So I think while City Council needs to honor, and going back to my last point, if you hire staff, we need to trust their leadership, but we also need to understand that there's a lot of areas where there are um, issues within um, staffing. So people don't feel like they are able to do 
to do the work that they've been called to do. I know with social services, there was often people who did not feel like why they had went to school to become social workers. They were able to do that today. I know that there has been a high turnover, you know, of teachers, and I've known teachers personally who have left the city of Charlottesville school systems because they didn't feel like um, they were listened to and that they mattered um, and that they were able to teach the way they had envisioned while they were pursuing um, a degree in teaching. Um, so when we're talking about taking a step back, especially in the climate that we are in right now, I think council will be, have to be very hands-on in helping to um, rebuild and, um, you know, come up with what um, – is going to be our holistic healing. I don't think that we'll be able to leave that just up to staff. And since we have so much work to do, um, that it's going to take all of us being very invested and maybe in um, rooms and that we normally wouldn't be in because of the time and the climate that we're currently in. Thank you. Okay, Mr. Hall. I think being disruptive can be a criminal offense. People, when disruptive, can be removed by the police, escorted out, and that's as it should be. Ask Mr. No. Tyson how many people he staffed. Look at his criminal record. Two. How many development did? Um, no justice until there's justice. There will be no peace until there's justice. Get out of here. Criminal destruction or not? Sorry, Mr. Hall. This is a real serious time. I think people are on edge, and uh, just as a person there is, feels like they have to speak out and uh, command an audience. Um, voluntary bodies must be allowed to meet and do their work that they are duty-bound to do. What we need to do is promote conversation and understanding. Thank you. I'll start with a little, I guess, an example I had. So when, as a neighborhood leader, I was, like other neighborhood leaders, very frustrated with the backlog we have for traffic calming initiatives within our community. And so um, I'm sorry. I, my background is industrial and systems engineering, so I'm a very process-driven person, and I've done a lot of work with actually coming into small companies and, like, like, working through and understanding how all their processes work and where we can find ways that we can make them better to serve, you know, in those cases, their businesses. So I took that similar approach with our traffic department, and within, you know, a couple conversations, it became clear. They thought I was with the news media and literally put up a wall. And I felt like, wow, I really can't even come in as a citizen who wants to help and get engaged. And I, I've seen a lot of that throughout my time as a neighborhood leader. And quite frankly, it's one of the reasons I decided that to get involved. I, I need to step up, and this is, this is one way in which to do so. I think it's important, as much as we need to, you know, be hands-off in terms of directing staff, we really need to understand the roles of different staff members, and I'm, I'm committed to taking an approach that I have taken in, in the private sector and really coming in and understanding what, what those key roles of scope is. What are, are those people placed in the right um, roles for the job? I think I've seen a, a number of occasions where we just don't have the right staff in the right place, not that that staff isn't valuable or we couldn't find another place for them. And, again, that's not for us to decide, but I think for us to really manage and hold our city manager accountable and to have the right metrics and a strategic a real strategic plan in place that helps our community, you know, helps us to drive where the community vision is, is going to require us intimately knowing the roles of staff in these different departments. Um, and I really feel like in terms of the um, appointing the commissions, the, really, the onus is on us 
you know, we, we're so, many of us have experienced like, getting to know a lot of people in this community. We have to go find those right folks to represent themselves, represent those, those needs on those commissions, and that's like the most important part, getting them into the door and to being part of that, and then again, being respectful of the decisions they make. But it does require dialogue. All of these things require dialogue, and um, I'm certainly committed to taking the professional experience that I feel like I can bring to the table to really understand how the city is operating so that we can have the accountability we need and um, I think more, more efficiency in how we're addressing the needs of the community. Mr. Jackson. Okay. I'm going to ask for 20 seconds at least because I want to respond to that. Because there's nothing in my past that I've done that I'm ashamed of. No, because people like that who are with groups who endorse and support certain candidates, you know, you talk about second chances and things like that. I've never made any excuses for any wrongs I've done in my life. But I've never held them back and used them as a crutch or anything like that. I found out a long time ago your past doesn't have to be your future. So when someone yells that out, it's a matter of public record. Feel free to look it up. Now, first of all, I'm the kind of person who inspects what they expect when it comes to council and staff. I would love to say that you just work with your staff and let them do their job. But in the past 15 years in our city school systems alone, we've had to pull about four or five child molesters out in school. So that's what happens when you just let people, and unfortunately they were molesting our children. So when you say let people go, no. Sometimes you just inspect what you expect. doesn't mean you have to approach the worker and say anything. You can go to the city manager and say, you know, I noticed they cut this, but they didn't do this, you know. But be out there. Be proactive. And if you're a city councilman, the only thing you're going to do is say, Mr. Manager, what do we need to do? What's going on? Then you're going to be a lousy city councilor. You've got to be out there every day or every chance you get. And I'm like you, Mr. Hall. I have time on my hands. And my time is here to serve the citizens. It's not to sit here and be pretty or get my picture taken or be on the news. I drop dead today or tomorrow. It's not about me. It's about what have I done for the people around me. What have I done for my fellow man, my fellow woman? You know, that's what it's about for me. So that's what we have to be as counselors. doesn't mean we have to be nosy or sticking our fingers in the pie, but it does mean we have to be vigilant. We have to be proactive. Okay, <clears throat> we do not want to keep all you nice people here too late this evening, so we'll take about three more questions. Now, some of these questions encompass others that I have here, so let me try this one. With the political climate so volatile, what concrete steps would you take to bring unity to Charlottesville? Concrete steps. Does anybody want to? I'll start. Okay. So I think first we need our um, city government to acknowledge what they should have done differently. Um, and then at that point, healing. So when we're talking about concrete steps coming up with a plan, it first involves people being open, citizens being open and trusting again. So we can't move forward until there is um, – Hopefully we get that with this report that we should receive by the end of the year. But until people feel comfortable with um, our leadership, there, there isn't any moving forward. 
um, after that point, after we get and look at the details, there is going to be a point, I'm pretty sure, with the report that comes out where a lot of people are not going to be happy with the information that's in that report. So we just have to acknowledge that. There, it is clear that there, w there was a lot of wrong done. It is clear that our leaders did not think on their feet the way we hope leaders think on their feet. It is clear, according to the UN report, that at our highest level of government, there were issues with the way the events of August 11th and 12th unfolded. That's the governor's office. So, and it trickled down to our local government. So people are going to ask questions after that report is even released about how to move forward with trust. And I think after that point, we can talk about concrete steps. We can talk about how do you rebuild trust. We can talk about how to get people in the room and at the tables who haven't been in the room and at the tables. And we can talk about coming up with policies that are holistic, but I don't think that we can begin to talk about it. I don't have any concrete steps sitting um, in this chair at this moment, and I wouldn't have a next step until I saw the report, and I would know immediately after reading that report what my next steps would be. But without the acknowledgement of the wrongdoing, there is no moving forward, and we know how that works. Thank you. <clears throat> Mr. Hall, you want to say anything on that issue? Uh, I think we need to listen to each other and uh, being civil toward each other and promote healing. We need to do the best we can to uh, talk to people that are angry and trying to s support their own agenda. And uh, I think the best way we can do is to be civil toward each other and promote love between each other. All you need is love. <laughs> Thank you. I'm certainly going to echo a theme of trust, and I think that I think that trust starts with trust among members of city council. Um, I really feel that right now council is not viewed as a collaborative body, but um, addressing individual needs, and that's a problem. And I guess it does concern me when I hear there's already coming into it so many people who have such a dissent for all of council right now. It's like we have to be able to kind of get through that, that dislike, any of us who have an issue with anyone on council, in a way that we can work collaboratively as a body, because that's the only way that things are going to get done and that we're going to be able to move forward. Um, you know, and we have to foster a culture of responsiveness and accountability and, and take that action. People are looking for answers. I certainly agree. Um, and not empty statements. And we must accept, um, establish, you know, some expectations for internal procedures that we as a council are going to follow so that we can be accountable to each other and how we're going to work together to serve this community. We also have to have that trust, as was related earlier, among council staff and our community. We always talked about the relationship with staff. Um, we continue to fall short as a community, or as a city, sorry, um, on providing clear and consistent communication to our community that surrounds us. The events leading up to and following August 12th were so reactive and not proactive. As a neighborhood leader whose you know, neighborhood includes you know, where a lot of these events took place, I couldn't believe that I was reaching out to, to I was told to the communications director, asking for guidance that we should be providing residents who live 100 feet away three days before August 12th, because we had gotten nothing from the city. And I just think that that lack of responsiveness 
and connectedness is giving our leadership very little to stand on. Um, but perhaps most importantly, we really need to be evaluating more effective ways to engage our community. Right now, council and staff have people coming to them on their terms, and that's just frankly not going to be the most effective way to get those voices in the room and have them heard. And so I think we really need to, to challenge because effective citizen engagement is, more, is way beyond lining up people in a room and hearing their concerns. It's about that dialogue. Okay. Mr. Jackson. Well, I hear a lot of trust and respect. And as old school would tell you, trust is something you earn. So that's something that we all have to work on, whoever is on council. And we have to learn how to work with each other. But we also need to learn how to come together as council and put our priorities in line. One thing I've heard from a lot of citizens is each councilor seemed to have their own little pet project. Well, we all have to vote on an issue and discuss things. So we all have to be working on the same projects together. You know, if it's transportation, infrastructure, we, those we need to prioritize, and we need to all five be sitting down and making these things happen. What do we need to do? Do we need to get, need to get grants? Do we need to find funding somewhere? And that's another thing. It's not about party. I keep trying to explain to people why it's not about party, because regardless of which party you are, if you're my federal or state representative, I'm going to move heaven and earth to get Charlottesville what it needs. I don't care who I have to deal with, Republican or Democrat. I'm not going to keep using the statue or the 12th as the worst thing that ever happened to Charlottesville, which it is. But rather, a report is here, or that happened. Whoever takes office has to realize this city still has to go on. These problems, education and everything else, still has to be addressed. And we have to learn how to sit down, have an open and warm environment that people can come to us and discuss situations, and we have to work together and prove that we're working together and can address your issues and you come up with solutions. I'm so sorry. Can you give me the question again? Okay. It was... Uh, Sorry, Can you give any concrete solutions to trying to heal the various? You know, I think it first starts with trust. I totally agree with that. I think it's important that the city council understands their role and responsibility in this whole structure, and they kind of stick to that. Uh, I think concrete, I would really like to offer maybe some therapy to our staff. I think they've had a very difficult many months, and we've put a lot of stress on them, and I think um, acknowledging that could go a long way to their productiveness. And um, I have reached out to many of these groups to ask to meet. I will do whatever, coffee, dinner, lunch, go for a walk, whatever it is. I would, because we have to come up with solutions, and, you know, it's, it can't be um, without dialogue. There is no um, moving forward. So, um those are the things I would like to do. Thank you. I've always been respectful of everybody that I've ever interacted with in my life, and I would certainly be respectful of citizens if I'm elected to city council, whether I meet them here in the meetings or city council meetings or out in the street. And I graduated from high school in June of 1967, 
The only reason I mention that is having grown up and come of age in the 60s, when there was a lot of hostility and a lot of anger, I think sometimes, uh, I, I'm paraphrasing Martin Luther King when he made a statement that, or maybe even wrote in a letter, you know, let African Americans, let us have our demonstrations and our rallies, uh, you know, and our protests so that we can vent the anger and the frustrations that we are feeling. I believe a lot of people get intimidated when people get angry and show that anger. And I think that a public leader should just be able to take three or four deep breaths and sit back and listen to what people are saying as to why they're angry and then try to take some steps to try to resolve that anger and talking to the people who are expressing it when they calm down. And that seems to be a, a, a skill that we, the public leaders have lost since the 60s. You know, and uh, it's, it's a skill that a, a good leader needs to have. And I think I have the, the capacity to do that. Our last question should not take very long to answer. And then those of you who did not get your questions asked, uh, I'm sure the candidates will be happy to stay afterwards if you want to talk to individual people about your questions. Some of the questions were extremely specific rather than being a little bit more general. Okay. When the collective wisdom of city council fails to answer a question, for example, with the park statues, would you be willing to refer the matter to the voters for a referendum settlement? Ms. Hill? Yes, I mean, I think that there are certain circumstances. I mean, it has to be case by case, but I certainly feel like we, we, need to, we need to be more often giving our citizens the opportunity for their voices to truly be heard, and I think the referendum is the most obvious way to do that. I do think there are... We are, we, are, we are elected here because there are certain decisions that I think we ultimately have to, but I guess you're, what you're implying is that there's been no progress in the decision. I guess I'm just trying to make sure I understand. Well, more when, when it's a very difficult decision and the council doesn't have a clear majority. Clear majority, yes. And I think that they're... And it's, and it's a volatile issue, let's sure. say. I, I, I believe that that is the best way to really understand the priorities of the community is to, in that circumstance... Um, is to hear to hear the voices through a referendum. Mr. Jackson. Well, that goes without saying. Definitely yes. I actually requested that council put that very issue to a referendum by the citizens. Let the, the majority of the citizens rule. It would have only took three councilors to vote to put it on a referendum. It would have been on November's referendum. Well, so. I think it's a bit more complicated than that. What I've heard uh, is a referendum can only be. You can only call them. Are you going to let me finish? No, actually, actually, state law says that your local government can vote and put it on a referendum since you're going to overtalk me anyway. I'm sorry. It doesn't, but we can't, the council can put it on a referendum. Or either you can get a group together to get enough signatures to put it on a referendum. But things like that, serious things like that, that actually affect all the citizens in Charlottesville. Why not put it on a referendum and ask the citizens? That's who we're here to represent. I am actually really, really sorry. I can only say I'm just very tired. And I did I not. I, I'm so yeah. sorry. No, I did. I really just meant to be talking with you, but that's not what we're doing here. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it, well, I don't know. I, <laughs> anyway. Um, so when I had asked about a referendum, I was under the understanding that the only way to do a referendum is if it's based on a tax or an increase. Maybe I'm wrong. 
I, actually, it's a very interesting question to see if that is the case. Um, I will say that I, I, I didn't know. I, my homework, I didn't do my homework properly. So um, if it is possible to do referendums, I think um, we don't want to be doing them all the time because the city council and, you know, is elected to do the work. But um, if it is something that's so big and so controversial and it's possible, um, I certainly would be interested in um, using that tool. Okay. Mr. Long? I, I, if an issue is viable and, you know, and, and controversial, I'd be in favor of putting it on the ballot for a referendum. Okay. Ms. Walker? Um, I would have some concerns about this particular issue being a referendum because of who we've seen um, show up in the rooms. And it's not that people are not concerned, um, but if you look at city council meetings, planning commission meetings, um, human rights commission meetings, social services advisory board meetings, if you just look at historically who shows up to meetings um, within the city, you do not see a lot of diversity. If you look to um, voting and polling and who votes, then there's not a lot of diversity. And particularly for black people, you're talking about people who feel like their voices are not listened to so they don't show up. And so I would have um, an issue, especially with the statute issue, um, with, putting, with putting that particular issue on a referendum. I think that we don't have, um, we haven't done a very good job within the city of honoring everybody. And so people generally stay out of the way because they don't feel um, like they matter. And I think that a lot of people would just opt out. And we know that we see this historically um, for who shows up, you know, to vote. So for this particular issue, I wouldn't support it. Okay. Mr. Hall. Yes, a referendum is needed to clarify, and clar clarity in phrasing the narrative is needed. Uh, actually, a poll was taken, and people wanted to leave the statues alone. That's what was revealed in the poll. So we do have some uh, information that shows how the people feel. And that certainly affected the way I thought about it after that poll was taken. Thank you. Well, thank you all, uh, the candidates, certainly, for I don't know how many forums you had on. It's wonderful of them to give you their answers to things. And thank you to the audience for being, uh, for many of you coming here and for being a very civil and respectful audience. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.